Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Michael Britt is preaching through 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-11, through 11, and the sermon title is, God is Love. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Let me make a couple of announcements real quick. Uh, If you're new here and you don't know me, my name is Joel. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, I'm not preaching today, and uh, and that's for a really awesome reason. God is doing amazing things in our church and with two particular churches. If you don't know, if you're not aware, you're here on a—it's a joint worship service between uh, Thompson Baptist Church and New City Church. So we uh, have—our two church families are together today, and that is a work of God, and this is all part of a long process that we've been in praying about for um, several months now, and we believe God is, is, is very much involved with joining our churches together. So today, um, I'm making an announcement on behalf of uh, all of the elders as we've prayed and been counseled and talked and discussed many, many things, all kinds of ins and outs, with many of you even being part, part of interview processes with some um, brothers that have come in to help us. And so today is the official announcement. Are you guys ready? Like, what's going on? What's God doing? You guys want to hear some dates? Okay. In the year 2026, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Okay, so I'll start with the date, and then we'll kind of work our way back with a few things that we believe God is going to have us do as we move towards that. So the date of the official celebration and merger coming together will be January 1st of 2023. So that's only a few months away. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so with that, um, of course, we, we can't wait to just be together until that time. So we're going to do all kinds of things together leading up to that point, including today. And at the end of the service, each of our leadership is going to send to you guys a digital copy of kind of a, a really beautiful roadmap that Michael Britt made up of kind of what we're doing through the rest of the year. All the dates that we'll be together here on a Sunday, as well as events that we're going to do together, including the barbecue that was mentioned and the worship night, will, are intended to be joint services that we do together, because we know we need more time together, right? To build relationships, to strengthen each other's bonds, and to grow in Christ together. We need this. So I would just say that you guys, uh, of both members of both churches that are here today, still in an official technical sense, we're two different bodies, but we are moving towards oneness. We're moving towards unification, and we believe that we will be better together. That's a phrase that we've sort of used as we've talked about what is God doing. We believe that we're better together than we are separate, and we've prayed about all these parameters and all the things that we, of course, we could go our separate ways, but we do believe God is in this. So keep praying, church. Pray for unity. Pray for your intentionality as you reach out and connect to members of what is now another body, but will be one body. One body of believers, unified under Christ, on, under one mission, one goal, one vision. And so that's where we're headed. So amen. That's a, that's, a, that's a big thing to praise God for for January 1st. Keep praying about that. And so like I said, we'll send this out to all of the communication platforms so you can see that. So part of that process is that you also have two bodies of leadership coming together. New City currently has five elders, and Thompson Baptist has two. And a lot of you have had questions about that. Well, what's happening to leaders? Well, we know now at this point that the the two sets of leaders are coming together, and we will lead and shepherd this one body together as seven elders under a plurality. 
Um, and so there will be, I'm sure, questions for you. If you're not used to a plurality of elders, those at New City, you certainly are. But if there's questions, we want to see questions. We want to hear questions and talk with you in person to work these things through. Um, but like I said, we believe God is in, in this. So this is going to work out wonderful. Well, part of that is that Michael Britt, who is currently the lead pastor at Topsom, um, he is a humble, humble man. A humble man. If you don't know him yet, you guys need to get to know him. And part of that humility is in the fact that this brother, and I can say this now because God is doing this work, is that though he's been a lead pastor of a church for the past several, several years, he is willing to step into a plurality where he doesn't have the primary preaching time, right? And that's something that he has been willing to do for the sake of the body of Christ. But he's going to preach today because though he will not be preaching full-time in the capacity that it has been about nine times a week, um, he will, he's going to have a little bit of a rest for his family. You can imagine how that will be a wonderful breath of fresh air. After years of holding a pretty heavy burden on his shoulders, he's going to now be a part of a, a team of seven guys shepherding a church together. You can see how that could be a difference. So he's going to share the word today, and I want you guys to pray for him and, uh, and be attentive to the word. And I wanted him to come up, and, uh, and I want to pray for him now as well. This is kind of a, a pretty momentous occasion. So, uh, guys, Michael Brick, give him a hand. Amen. Let me, let me pray for him. Join me. God, thank you so much for what you're doing with our two families and the way you have worked miraculously, God, to knit hearts together. Thank you for knitting my heart with Michael and giving us a common vision together, as well as all of the elders, that as we gather, there is unity. As we gather, there is a strength in the Holy Spirit and a love for your word that we know is necessary in this day and age that we live. Father, I pray for this brother, God, that he would now with, with boldness, with security in your word, with faithfulness, God, that he would exposit the scriptures and teach what has, what has been laid on his heart today, and that we would be attentive. God, thank you for this season ahead of us. We, as, as two churches looking to become one in the next few months, God, we, we, we pray for years and years and years of faithful Bible preaching from every person, any person that ever stands at this pulpit. God, it would be for the purpose of your glory, the edification of the saints, and that Christ would be magnified. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in this day and that your will would be accomplished in the season ahead. We love you. We thank you. Bless this brother now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless Amen. you. All right. Well, good morning. That was staggeringly loud. Is it too loud for you? No, this is good. All right. It's good to see everybody today. Um, so this is huge. This is huge. I'm not going to look at Isaac again because he's smirking at me. <laughs> this is awesome. Praise the Lord. I thought about, like, uh, you know, saying, oh, man, just thank you, everyone at TBC, and you've been so wonderful. And then I thought if I start naming people, I'm going to forget people. But I'm just so thankful for what uh, the Lord has done and what the Lord has done in our church and what the Lord's done here at New City and how the Lord has been, like Joel said, knitting hearts together. And uh, I'm so thankful, so thankful. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, um, time out. I was worried. I told my wife, I'm worried. I might not fill the time that Joel normally fills when preaching. And she was like, I don't think you get to worry about that. Um, 
I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, um, I believe in the sun not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Uh, you can't put God in a test tube. You can't push him through the scientific method. Um, and skeptics who are longing to see God, unfortunately, won't be able to measure him um, in a beaker or put him on a scale. But one of the best ways we see God working is when you look at him accomplishing things that we could never do on our own power. And you have to step back and say, that is the work of someone much greater and more loving than I am. And uh, I've seen that uh, in this process. So I'm so thankful, so, so, so thankful. So we've been in a series, right? Um, Let me just be unprofessional for a second. There we go. So we've been in a series. Oh, I'm so sorry. I wander. It's totally cool. Joel, is he's got this thing down where he just stands here and thus and thus. I'm be at the back of the church by the time I'm done preaching, so I'm it just hang in there with me. All right, all right, good stuff. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin knows by now how to how to in full time keep me in in check. So if he just tackled me, that's probably why. Um, good stuff. So uh, we've been in a series, and the series is called "Rightly Handling the Word of Truth, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth." Um, we remember that last week uh, Joel preached, "Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart." That was a great message. I did listen to it, um, and I was involved in trying to help out with some of the city group questions for it, and I think it was very good. In the same series, we're now going to be covering a different topic. But before I jump into the topic at hand, I wanted to share with you a quote by a recently departed saint named J.I. Packer. Anybody ever heard of J.I. Packer before? J.I. Packer, of course, of course, Joel's hand goes right up, and uh, it was kind of like when you asked about Abraham Kuyper the other day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so here's what J.I. Packer said. Please listen closely to this, uh, to this quote. He says this. Once people reverse the proper relationship between Scripture and their own thinking and start judging biblical statements about God by their private ideas about God instead of vice versa, their knowledge of the Creator is in eminent danger of perishing, and with it, the whole idea of supernatural religion." In other words, we've got to rightly handle the word of truth, and instead of trying to force Scripture underneath our authority, we allow the Scriptures to be our authority, and we live our lives under it, rather than to try to squeeze it and conform it to our current worldviews. All right, a few weeks ago, I was playing with my children outside the house, the three youngest one, and it was an outdoor adventure, and we were running around and having a blast, and uh, our, our adventure took us behind the house where I saw a blueberry bush, shrub, plant, tree, orchard, I don't know, the thing upon which blueberries grow, and... I thought, wow, that's not really surprising because there's a lot of blueberries where we live. We love our blueberries. They're great. But as I got closer and inspected this blueberry bush, I noticed that it wasn't a blueberry bush at all. It was called a bristly sarsaparilla plant. I have tried so hard to pronounce that word correctly because it spells sarsaparilla. But my wife, in her love, was basically like, honey, just say sarsaparilla. (laughs) So I'm going to. A sarsaparilla plant. What's really interesting is the berries are blue, and, and they look like blueberries, especially at a certain point in the development. But the biggest difference between the sarsaparilla berries and blueberries is that if you eat the sarsaparilla berries, try to say that three times fast, you would have a little bit more compassion if you were up here. Um, if you eat the sarsaparilla berries in the same way that you eat blueberries, you'll be sick. They're not good for you. They're toxic. They will make you ill. The point is, it's very easy to make mistakes of recognition, especially when two things look very similar from a distance. That's why it's important to examine things closely, and the realms of doctrine and theology are far from being exceptions to this rule, especially when counterfeits and distortions of good things are found 
everywhere. And just like this Asperilla plant, bad doctrine has the potential to do harm to anyone who doesn't take the time to examine it closely and consumes it indiscriminately. Does that make sense? So by way of application, I couldn't help but think of a, of a social media post lately. Um, it was on the recent announcement of forgiveness of student loans. I'm not taking a position on that. This has nothing to do with what you and I think about it. It's an illustration. Hang in there. Um, and the, the comment on Facebook was, Christians and forgiveness go hand in hand. Why would Christians have a problem with this? Regardless of where you stand on the issue, you can immediately see how that's a mischaracterization of a Christian attribute, right? Christian, it's, a, it's, a, it's taking something that is a good thing and it's pulling it out of the context of which the scripture teaches and places it into something in which it doesn't really neatly fit. So today we're going to talk about the topic of God's love. God's love. Specifically, we're going to talk about what it means that God is love and what implications that has for how we live. Just like the idea of I stand at the door and knock has been misused and convoluted into something it doesn't mean, so has the phrase God is love been twisted to mean something it doesn't mean. Whether we hear it in the form of an expression like God is love, so don't condemn me, or aren't Christians supposed to be loving? Or whether we see it on a, a rainbow pattern lawn sign that says, hate has no home here. You ever see one of those? Hate has no home here. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, well, it doesn't have any home in my home either. But you see the, the divide that's created by a sign like that? Well, hate has no home here. And the implication is that because you don't particularly assign yourself to certain ideal, you are automatically full of hate and you shouldn't be full of hate because as you know, God is love. You see how easily that doctrine can be twisted and shoehorned into something where it doesn't belong. So we see distortions of the doctrine of God's love everywhere. So this morning, we're going to delve into the scriptures to reveal the beauty and treasure of what the love of God truly is. While we could spend a lot of time examining uh, some of these modern distortions and exposing their fallacies, I'm of the persuasion that the better we know the real thing, the more likely we are to spot the counterfeits. So let's first take a look at our text, from which often flows a misused doctrine, but it does indeed teach that God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 11. Um, in keeping with the consistency, I'll be reading this from the English Standard Version. In 7 through 11 of 1 John chapter 4, the scripture says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Herein is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Amen? Amen? So a little bit of background on this letter. I love background. I like learning about why people wrote stuff and, and things like that. I don't know if you're kind of a Bible nerd like me, but I absolutely love it. Um, so John was writing in a pastoral to a collective of house churches uh, in or around Ephesus. And the reason why he's writing this letter to these house churches around Ephesus was because false teachers were inundating, they were creeping into the church and they were teaching false doctrine. 
their, their main false doctrine that they were teaching was that Jesus was not actually who he thought or said he was. Hence why you read a number of times in the letter, to, uh, that first, uh, the letter of 1 John that uh, if you don't confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you're not of him. Because that was one of the big doctrines that they were denying was that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And so he said, test the spirits, try them, see if they really will confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because if they did not, then you knew right off the bat they were false teachers. Make sense? So this is the occasion for John's letter. So these men that John is writing in response to were characterized by darkness and hate. And so um, kind of like a Facebook argument, right? Uh, just, just vitriol, anger. So John is doing what one commentator calls damage control by reminding the church of things that they already know, building on the themes introduced in the 13 through 17 chapters of John's gospel. The goal of this sermon in a letter was to help the churches know how to properly identify and reject false teachers, not by individually pointing out each false teacher, but by like training a bank teller how to recognize a counterfeit bill showing the real thing over and over again in this letter. So that's where we're joining John in this passage. He's in the middle of building a case that those who do not love are not really of God, and that this is a great way to spot false teachers. So here's where we're at. Far from being merely a defensive mantra used to ward off any confrontation or rebuke, the phrase God is love actually is much deeper than that. It's entirely separate from that. It's not a tool to be wielded by people to defend themselves, but rather a way to peer into the heart of God and to see who he is toward his creation. Since any attribute that God expresses is the most perfect form of that attribute, we know that God's love is characterized by excelling into perfection where the world's poor substitutes invariably fall short. I want to say that one more time. I teach this, and I believe it is true. Whatever God is, he is infinitely that. God, is, God did not just decide one day to become something. God is who he is. It's a little confusing, but that's why his name is I Am. Because he is. You say, that's not simple at all. Welcome to Bible study, right? It's beautiful. But it's actually done that way on purpose because if you could figure it all out in one read-through, you wouldn't ever go back to him again. He's a, he's a mystery. He draws you in and gives you clarity the more you have a relationship with him because the mode of knowing God isn't in a test tube. It's by loving him deeply. But that's besides the point. Um, since any attribute that God expresses, I'm reading this again, is the most perfect form of that attribute, we know that God's love is characterized by excelling into perfection where the world's poor substitutes invariably fall short. So I want to take us on a bit of a survey to explore what God's love is like, and then we'll end up right back where we started in 1 John. Sound good? Thank you. The three of you. Oh, I like to. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to be as like interactive and be like, all right, who can tell me? I'm trying to, you know, but all right. God's love, number one, we got four things I want to talk about. God's love is number one, a confronting love, it's a confrontational love. Whenever something controversial is being discussed where Christians take one side and unbelievers take another, I often read or hear a phrase like, aren't Christians supposed to be loving, as though that were a mic drop. What this worldview is missing, however, is that true love confronts, and interestingly, we all believe this to some extent. Here's what I mean. I have four amazing children. 
They are experts at coming up with things to do that should never be done. (laughs) Why wouldn't it be okay to shove this Nerf bullet three inches up my nose while chewing on a rubber band? Well, I I guess I don't have any good reason to, and I love you, so... No. Why wouldn't I try to jump from the loft ledge down to the dining room table? Because after all, Spider-Man did it. And he got the little web spinners for his birthday, you know. Those aren't real web spinners, you know. So you guys know this already, that no one who actually loves their children would just give blanket approval to whatever they come up with. Real love confronts in order to keep safe. Real love corrects in order to guide and and discipline and chastise. Real love doesn't just say, well, I suppose anything you want to do, just go ahead and do it, sweetheart. In fact, I think we have a word for children who are raised that way. Spoiled. Ruined. God doesn't want to spoil his children. He loves you too much. How about I put it this way? God loves you so much that he would save you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Loves you too much to leave you that way. Um, In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, this is a newish Bible for me, so I'm going to take a little bit longer flipping there. And the only ESV I have in print form is this beautiful, gilded, coffee table style Bible. So I feel like I'm going to like rip it just by touching it. It's not meant to be like flipped through, so be patient with me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Remember, we're doing a bit of a survey through what God's love is like. Look at verse 6 with me. The Bible says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises or corrects every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Two more verses, three more verses. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You remember Egypt? Babylon? Israel was painfully dragged through a series of captivity, not because God hated Israel, but because God loved them too much to allow them to continue unchecked in their sin. This was the natural consequence. God turned them over to discipline. So what does this mean for you? It means that even if it means being called a hater or being canceled or kicked out of a group, speaking the truth in love. It means saying, I love you, and I love you too much to affirm this sin. What does that look like, Michael? Uh, No. (laughs) It means something different for everybody. When you're in a conversation with someone, and they might be seeking approval for what they're doing, sometimes even by your silence, you are giving approval, and you are not really loving the way that you need to be loving them. You say, well, it's a little different because God has authority uh, to correct, and I don't really always have that authority. Well, listen, listen, and I want to see if I can explain that a little bit. Um, 
Saying, I love you, and I love you too much to affirm this sin. Saying, I'll always love you, but I'll always love you enough to speak up and try to steer you right, is what God does for us out of a relationship of love. It doesn't have as much to do with authority as much as it does to do with a relationship of love. The more you love someone, the more you are going to desire what is best for them. I want to take a moment and make something clear over in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Would you flip over there or look up? Do we have these up on the thing? If we don't, that's fine. I'll just read them to you. 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 24. When we are in love confronting sin, when we are in love standing up against the darkness of the world, here's how we have to do it. The Bible says in verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see how much he's writing on this? Come on, saints. Do you see how much he's writing on this? The scripture is overly clear, and this passage teaches two very unshakable and immutable truths. One, that God grants repentance. Two, that God says, when we confront, we're to do so without quarreling, with kindness, with wisdom, patience, and gentleness, because our approach to someone is a matter of eternal significance. In other words, God, for whatever reason in his sovereignty, has chosen you and me to be the vessels. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us the Great Commission. But he's chosen us to be the vessels of the gospel. And he's chosen us to be the vessels of lovingly correcting a culture and, 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 a, and a society that is infatuated with sin and darkness. But even in our approach to that darkness, even in our loving approach to that sin, our interactions must be gentle and patient. And you must, look at what the Bible says. The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. In other words, you actually have to know what you're talking about. Because our interactions with others somehow play into God's grand plan of redemption. We must always, above all things, speak the truth in love. And here's just a couple of practical points, and we're going to move on to number two. Number one, don't try to lovingly confront others on social media or text messaging. Take it from me. It just doesn't work. Um, God didn't design us to be creatures over digitization. In other words, God designed us to be personal creatures. That's why assembling together is how it works rather than I'll sit at home and tune in. There is something different, and that difference is by design. And so when we confront and we love and we correct, it is much better done over a cup of coffee with raised eyebrows that listen, with a smile that says, I love you, with a tone that says, I am gentle, because so many of those things cannot be communicated over digital media. And you can't hang up on each other when you're, you know, that's also a plus. Lastly, on this point, correction without a relationship is a catalyst for rebellion. If you don't, uh, people say this, and I think it is true, people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think there's an element of truth to that. 
Does that make sense to you? People don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And if you're just correcting someone because they're wrong and you're right and you're sick of it, that's going to show in your correction. And it's going to actually further um, galvanize that person in their sin rather than draw them away from it. Let's say it the scripture. We just read it. We just read it. So we could, we, could, we could serve one of two things. We could do one of two things when we're looking to correct. We could further mire someone into the quagmire, into the, 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 the snare of the devil, as it says in the text, or we can be used of God to liberate them from the error in which they are. Did that make sense? All right, number two. God's love, real love, is a confrontational love. Number two, God's love is a committed love. It's a committed love. This is where I'm going to get in trouble, and that's okay. The first of many. In 1987, Rick Ashley performed a song entitled, Never Gonna Give You Up. <laughs> you know how to play that, Mark? Anything? Okay, well, maybe we can do that for the invitation. No, I'm just joking. All right, here we go. Um, Today, this song is best known for Rick rolling, right? Where you send somebody a video and you're like, I can't believe this preacher said this. And you tap it. Dun, 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 dun. I won't ever do that again, I promise. That's, that was unfair to you, okay? But, but you click on it and you're like, oh, I've been Rick rolled. You know, it's a snare. It's a trap. <laughs> it's the way we love each other. No, 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 no. Rick Ashley wrote this song called Never Gonna Give You Up, and um, I'm compelled to point out that even this silly song helps us understand that even an unbelieving world understands that the best, purest manifestation of love is one that doesn't abandon the other when times are tough or when irreconcilable differences arise. Guys, in the course of my salvation, I put many irreconcilable differences between me and God, but he has not given up on me because I promise you, long before Rick Astley ever wrote this silly song, God had mastered the art of what commitment really is because that's part of who God is. That is inherent in his character. It is the fiber of his being. It is the heartbeat of his essence to you is that he is committed to you and he will relentlessly pursue you and he will lose none of his own. So looking around, it's clear that this ideal, this standard has yet to be met by any society, including the one in which you and I presently live. We're characterized today, especially in America, but I'm not preaching about America, I'm just preaching about humanity. We're characterized as a hookup culture. We're obsessed with instant gratification and fleeting pleasure. And the result of this underlying lack of commitment is a nation saturated in cancel culture, pornography, sexual autonomy, adultery, and quick marriages. It's safe to say that we've come far from deeply knowing the concept of a committed love. But thanks be to God that his commitment doesn't waver just because our understanding of it does. Where our imperfect love is often whimsical, fleeting, and dependent on the actions of others, God's love is unaffected by our faults and failures. It does not depend on us in the slightest. I didn't wake up one morning and said, I think I'll make God love me. It didn't happen, and it couldn't happen. Despite how beautiful the man in the mirror is in the morning, that's tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> I am not lovely. 
I am not worthy. And I understand, I really do understand um, trying to repair some of the harm done by generations of Christianity gone wrong and telling people you are worthy, you do have self-worth. I understand that. But in terms of me being able to merit something of God on my own, I am bankrupt. I'm bankrupt. So, um, let me just say this. When God loves, he is agreeing with his own character. God's love is a covenant love. God doesn't feel in love with us. He didn't fall in love with us. Before the foundations of time, God's heartbeat has been pure, perfect love directed at us through his son, Jesus. And this is what the Hebrew scriptures call chesed. Um, Chesed is a Hebrew word that's been translated as loving kindness, mercy. Uh, Psalm 136 is mercy endureth forever. That word mercy is chesed. And it, and it doesn't really have a direct English translation. It doesn't really have um, uh, in, a word-for-word exact way to translate it into English. But the best we can kind of come up with is that it means a steadfast covenant faithfulness and loyal love. And it's well described in many scriptures, but it's best seen in the account of Hosea. Would you turn to Hosea for me? Hosea. You say, brother, I love you, but I don't know where that is. It's in the minor prophet. So if you start at Malachi, the Italian prophet, Malachi... And go back, you'll get him, Hosea Joel Amos. Guys, I love this new Bible, I really do. But, here we go, all right. Look at Hosea 1, this is how this, this book opens up. And we're not going to go through the whole book, though I recommend it, I really do. I think this would be a great opportunity to sit down and, 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 and if, you have, if you have an hour, maybe two, depending on how fast you read and comprehend, read through this amazing account of Hosea. It's phenomenal and it's deep and it reveals the heart of God toward his people. But look at chapter one with me. Um, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Josiah, king of Israel. Now time out, just time out. A lot of times when passages start this way, we, we tune right out. I do, and that's why I can testify from experience. When I feel like I'm about to get into a genealogy, I'm just like, all right, Lord, I'm going to just coast for a second, and you wake me up, you know, and it starts to kind of get good again. I'm just, just being real with you. But these things are all here for a reason, every single word, every single word. So it opens up by saying, this is the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, mm-hmm. and then it, then it crouches this event in a point in time. Now look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. That's what that word translated means, No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Well, that sounds like a real lack of commitment, but keep reading. Keep reading. 
Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. When it seems that all hope is lost and when we place ourselves at odds with God through our sin, we have every reason in the world to think that we should be rightly abandoned. But that's not who God is. God says, right in this same place, When we had to make a declaration that says you are not my people, we will once again say you are my people because I am not going to give up on you. And that's what chesed means. That's what that means. Oh, and by the way, that's what it means when we say God is love. (laughs) Doesn't anything else seem paltry and cheap in comparison? So as you can see from the text, Hosea was told to go marry a sex worker, a prostitute. He was not to qualify her based on her works or perceived purity, but rather based on God's sovereignly... Excuse me, I I read that wrong. But rather based on God's sovereign and seemingly arbitrary choice. So he did. Now she, in turn, was faithful to him all the days of her life. No, that's not what happened. She stepped out on him time and time and time again. And Hosea was so committed to her that he had food delivered to the doorstep of the dude with whom she was sleeping. Read the the story. It'll tear your heart up before it mends it with thoughts of God's perpetual, continuing, committed love. Um, We might look at Hosea and say, Hosea, you're kind of being an idiot. You should dump her. Isn't it allowed? Well, maybe. But that's not who God is. He is faithful. He is joyfully bound by his covenant and his character and will never forsake his own. Third, there's kind of a fourth point, but it's short. You say, Joel preaches way longer than this. I have a terrible habit of letting you think I'm going to be done long before I'm done, as my (laughs) flock can attest, so they'll learn, learn, Ralph says. Number three, and this I think, this I am quite sure is the most um, supernatural and moving aspect to God's love. God's love is absolutely a confronting love. God's love is absolutely a committed love. But God's love is above all things a cruciform love. A cruciform love. What does that mean, Britt? Cruciform is an old word that I wish we used more today. It means that it's shaped like a cross. And God's love, if it's shaped like anything, is shaped not like an ark, not like a temple, like a cross. While the love and mercy of God flows like a river throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, there is no greater way to see the love of God for humanity than when we look upon the cross of Jesus Christ and see God himself hanging there for you and for me. Turn to Romans chapter 5, would you? Romans chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 5. I love, love, love this passage. This passage is a, is a game changer for me. Um, 
I was watching a YouTube clip two nights ago by a fellow who's got a YouTube channel completely dedicated to refuting Christianity. It's a waste of your time. Don't watch this stuff. And I was really curious because he was talking about the evolution of altruism. Altruism. In other words, that's the thing that makes you do good things for each other, right? And he goes to the animal kingdom and he looks at the monkeys and he says, well, you see, this is how this biologically evolved and this is why humans do good things because we're trying to protect our tribe. We're trying to um, aid in the selection of, 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 of na- in natural selection. We're trying to aid in the preservation of our species. And I can kind of get that, but here's the thing. That's not at all, I'll just say this, that falls wildly short of the love of God demonstrated on the cross. And here's the text that shows it in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time. Well, why did did Jesus come when he came? I don't know, but it was the right time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Well, perhaps uh, for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. You can't reconcile two things that already get along. You reconcile two parties that are in utter disagreement and enmity. Reconciliation happened at the cross, not because we were lovely, not because we deserved it, not because we in any way had earned it, or that we had just soaked God's heart so full of compassion that, no, 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 it is not because we did anything to merit it whatsoever, but it was the right time that God died for the ungodly, and that's you and me. So listen, please, Paul didn't deny that even an imperfect form of love can do great things. It can even cause someone to give up our lives for another, particularly for a good man or someone we love dearly. In fact, the text that we just read together was very likely Paul riffing off of the uh, Roman version of Marvel movies. Truly. They would stand on the porches and in 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 the city centers, and they would tell what they call the hero stories. And they would regale each other with stories of heroes who would die for their countrymen, and then they would praise and be thankful for these heroes. So it was their version of, you know, Captain America and uh, Iron Man. Remember Iron Man? I know we're all too spiritual to have seen Iron Man, but just for those among you who are not, at the end of the Infinity War saga, my church knows how I struggle with trying to get these things right. At the end of the Infinity War saga, Iron Man, what does he do? He gives up his life, right? And he saves all of the... Okay, nobody's seen that? All right, that's fine. I'll just see. I'll just, all right. Everybody's just too proud. You're like, this is church. I don't think we can admit to having seen Iron Man. No, but here's the thing. At the end of the movie, he saves the entire world by giving up his life. But notice that he didn't die for Thanos. Come on, saints. He didn't die for Thanos. He died for his tribe. He died for humans. Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for his enemies. You can make all the cases that you want for the biological imperative of a mother dying for her child or even a soldier throwing himself over a hand grenade for his compatriot, but you cannot ever biologically make sense of the fact that someone would deliberately lay down his life for someone who was too ready to kill him already. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense.
God's love reaches beyond those who are lovely and worthy and friendly and goes right into the arena of those who are unlovely, unworthy, and unfriendly. In fact, please consider this illustration with me. Let's use that idea of two countries at war. And except this time, the enemy, he's about to lob a grenade, but he misses and it falls right down into the middle of his own platoon. Does that make sense? And, and one of the soldiers from the opposite army then rushes across enemy lines, past the veil, so to speak. Hope you're, hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. And then throws himself on that hand grenade so that his enemies might be saved to his own great disadvantage. See, that's certainly what it looks like. And in a, in a sense... Uh, uh, from our point of view, that's exactly what happened. Christ threw himself on the hand grenade lobbed by his enemies in order to save his enemies. That's cruciform love, and it transcends anything seen in the natural world. Listen to this quote by Doug Gruthius. He says this, The apex of sacrificial love was displayed through the physical, mental, and spiritual suffering of Jesus Christ on behalf of his enemies. Ladies and gentlemen, the cross of Christ, I submit to you, the cross of Christ is entirely natural, normal, and noble if we were all already on his side. That takes nothing. Comparatively, it takes nothing. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So for us, anybody can love and even sacrifice deeply, expecting nothing in return, especially for good people, noble causes, and folks they love. The Bible and nature are clear about this, but for our enemies, listen, saints, for the ones who want you to die, for the ones who won't ever be thankful, for the ones who falsely accuse you, for that coworker who keeps taking credit for your work, do you love him with a cruciform love? For that guy who just pulled out in front of you and endangered you, what was he thinking Do you love them with the cruciform love? For the spouse that's unreasonable and unkind, why did you ever get married in the first place? Do you love them with a cruciform love? Because it is remarkably easy to love when someone is not being your enemy. But the minute someone shifts and now their posture is against you rather than for you, you don't have nearly as many natural reasons to love that person. Now it takes something from above, not something from within. God's love is cruciform. I'm kind of summing up this point by saying this. He gave his life for a bloodthirsty crowd that was more than willing to take it from him. And here's a huge problem permeating American Christianity. You want me to tell you what it is? We're more ready to kill than we are to die. We're more ready to kill than we are to die. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and sometimes you look around and you think maybe it's the blood of the oppressors that should be the seed of the church. When we have enemies, sometimes we think that they are to be conquered through force rather than conquered through love. When someone does something for us, even, even as Christians who should be led and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, sometimes we, we default to that, that awfully natural persuasion that we're going to defend our own, including ourselves, at the expense of any enemy who might be threatening it. But Jesus said, I'm not just interested in defending my own. I'm interested in incorporating whosoever will into my own. Does that make sense? That's what the cross did. The Bible says that in the cross, 
He took what was enmity with God and now reconciled it unto himself. That's what the whole tearing of the veil meant. That was Jesus Christ bringing two together that naturally could never be together on their own. So, that's number three. God's love is a cruciform love. So, when we're tempted to resort to baser instincts and say a cutting remark or post a mean status on Facebook or throw a right hook at our enemies, even to defend our loved ones, and I'm not saying you shouldn't defend your loved one. Please don't. The worst thing that could happen this morning is, well, Michael said that if somebody breaks into my home and tries to kill my family, I've just got to hand them a gospel tract. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Not what I'm saying. You can take that to an unhealthy extreme, and I hope that you won't. And if you have questions, talk to me later. But I hope I'm clear is that our default position shouldn't be to run an attack. Our default position should be to lay down our lives and wash some feet and serve other people. Yeah. So when that politician, that government official lies and cheats and steals and just takes more money out of your wallet, how, how are you feeling about washing that guy's feet right now? You know what I'm saying? Because it's really easy. Oh, come on, guys. Come on, guys. This is just, I'm, I'm not going to camp out here. I just want to say that um, it's really easy to love the politician you voted for because you feel like he best represents your interest. In other words, he's part of your tribe. But the politician for whom you did not vote... For some reason, we don't always default to love for them. Now, I'm not talking about approval. We just talked about a love that confronts. But I'm talking about a love that says, even in our disagreements, we will wash the feet of our enemies. You say, I could never do that. Now you're getting it. You can't. That's why we need the love of Christ in us. God, who is rich in mercy, offers it freely, and thus so should you. The last thing I have, it's it's a lot shorter, but I just want to leave you with this, and then we'll jump in. We'll wrap it up together. God's love is a comforting love. Right back where we started in 1 John chapter 4, if you want to flip back over there, we're going to wrap it up here. We've got one more after this, but 1 John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude and Revelation, 1 John chapter 4. Look what the Bible says in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, right? Torment, terror. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What is this passage saying? We've all heard that perfect love cast out fear, but what is, the, what is the intent of the biblical author in this passage? What's the context? The context is fear of the judgment and wrath of God. But since we who are in Christ's love, we see that God's wrath has been poured out on Christ. He took that for us so that love, the love of Christ is a safe harbor for those who are his and who by their new nature now love others. God's love is a comforting love. So, um, if you're in Christ, don't lose sleep over your future. The judge of all the earth will do right. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now, therefore, no condemnation, no wrath. The love of Christ casts out all fears, all fears. So, let me leave you with this. If no one but God sees your expressions of confronting, committed, and cruciform love, you're still as safe as can be in Christ because he's the only audience that matters. 
Don't distort that either, by the way. Well, Britt said that I don't have to do anything to anybody else. It's just about me and God. No, 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 no. Love always has an object. And in the mind of Jesus, that love should be flourished, excuse me, should flourish and be practiced within the context of the local church. I actually love seeing on the group chat, hey, um, anybody have this? Oh, hey, I just got some potatoes. Hey, I got some chickens, you know. Hey, I have an actual literal kitchen sink. (laughs) It was awesome, man. It's like everything and the kitchen sink. It's so cool. (laughs) And to see that and to see someone say, well, I could use this. I'm there. I'm there. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, it's interesting because, again, again, I'm, I'm, I'm creating a straw man here. Well, of course you guys would do that for each other. You know, you guys are kind of part of the same tribe. No, please understand, we are only part of the same tribe because we are united in Christ. If it weren't for the love of God, some of you might very well be my enemies. That's a scary thought, right? I'm a pretty insecure guy, you know, and I think if some of you wouldn't like me, but that's the thing, right? Not all of us are going to be entirely likable to each other, but in Christ, we should all be entirely lovable to each other because we are all lovable to God because of what Jesus Christ did. Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. It is because of what Christ did for us that we can channel that to others. And that is the context of what it means to walk in the spirit and live as a Christian. So, um, oh, and by the way, Romans chapter 8, verse, uh, you got to go there. Romans chapter 8, seriously, check this out. We were just in Romans, Britt. I know, I know. Look at Romans 8. This is the one that says, there is now therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, look at uh, verse 35, right? Listen to what Paul says. Oh, by the way, mm, Paul sees God's love as something that is strong as God himself. Uh, In other words, I, Michael Britt, standing before you, have some attributes that I do better at than others. And if I fail in one, I might still be really strong in others. And you might say, well, you might depend on Michael for this, but you sure can't count on him for this. And I think that might be true of all of us because we're not imperfect. We're not perfect. But God, Paul is of the mind, and I believe we should also be of the mind, this is God's word to us, that the love of God is as strong as God himself. The same power that could create the entire universe that we're all having a bunch of fun looking through the James Webb telescope at, that's the same strength of love that God has for you. And Paul's gotten a glimpse of this. Look at, look at the Bible in verse 35. He says this. I uh, look at verse 30. Mm, let's mm, start with 30. 31. You got to go back to 31. Just check it out. Watch, watch. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is such a rich and stable kind of love compared to the cheap imitation dollar store kind of love that is often appealed to when people just say, well, God is love. 
not his love, it pales in comparison to the rich tradition and reality of God's love as portrayed to us in the scriptures. So now it's time to apply this to our own lives. I urge you to allow the love of God to confront you and your sins. God loves me. There's no way he'd ever have a problem with this. God doesn't make mistakes, and this is the path I've chosen, and God loves me, and there's no way that God could ever hate me so much as to, you might sound like the child who says, my parents would never hate me so much to not let me have this whole pint of ice cream. I think only a parent who hates themselves would let a little child have a whole tub of ice cream, let alone their child. As Jeff Metter said, listen to what Jeff Metter said, would you? Jesus is the expulsive power in our affections. Jesus is more exciting, invigorating, and satisfying than anything that moth, rust, or high-speed internet could destroy. Let the love of God confront you and meet you where you're at and come face to face with the creator of the universe who happens to know what's best for you and submit and surrender your will to him. Why? Because he loves you more than you even love yourself. He loved you before you were conscious. He loved you before you were formed. And if he doesn't know what's best for you, I don't know why we think that anyone else could. No, he knows what's best. He's proven that time and time again. And by the way, if you're the kind of person who would rather avoid confrontation with others, I get you. Trust me. I may be kind of loud, and I like being kind of funny, and you know, at the baseball game, I'm not afraid to sing, take me out to the ball game, obnoxiously loud, embarrassing everyone around me. <laughs> but I don't like confrontation any more than the next guy. Well, some of you guys like it. I don't get it. Some of you guys make up reading, hurry, hurry, what? I'm so sorry. Nothing, your shoe's untied. Oh, I'm so, I was terrified for a second, you know what I mean? Some, I, don't, I don't get it, like the barking, I don't, I don't, oof, I don't get it. I don't get you, Mark. No, I'm just joking. I'm, I'm, really, just, I'm really just messing. No, no. Um, if you don't like confrontation, join the club. But as believers, we actually have a responsibility to lovingly confront the darkness of the world. Else, how will the light shine? If you never light a candle, why do you expect the darkness is going to go away? We have a responsibility to confront the darkness in love. And then I would also urge you to shape your love around the love of God with respect to commitment. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, love believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So if your love is falling short of that ideal, it's time to step it up in Christ and say, Lord, please help me love like you did. Help me never give up when the going gets rough. Help me not to abandon. Help me not to cut people off. Help me, help me to bring people into my life and join you on your mission to restore the world unto yourself commit the world is really losing the idea of what it means to commit and i'm not talking about tom brady joining the buccaneers or anything like that that's that's how it's that's how the game's played but the world really is losing sight of what it means to commit to something long term and it is now more than ever we need to show this world what a committed faithful love looks like that is not dependent on the actions or perceived purity of anyone else but that is dependent on the character that God works in us and then lastly I urge you to display cruciform love not only to your friends and loved ones even the basest of mammals can do that I urge you to express cruciform love to those who hate you, to those who lie about you, to those who use you for their own gain. They have their reward, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So do you. So love them with the cruciform love. And then the last verse we're going to look at, it's just, it's just a page or two over from where we started in 1 John. It's actually 1 John chapter 5. It's one verse. 
It's the very last verse of 1 John. The very last verse. It simply reads thus. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You might be reading this kind of sermon in a letter from John, and you might see these reflecting and, and rebounding themes of light, life, love, truth. You see, the, and, and it's just beautiful how it works. And then at the end, it's almost like it doesn't fit in. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you're like, oh, okay, John, I, I appreciate that. I don't really see how it fits. Here's how it, here's how it fits, in my mind, anyhow. And I believe that this is how we should view this. I believe John said this at the end of this letter because it is so easy to remake what God has already made in our own image. And love is no exception to that. Truth is no exception to that. An idol is anything that you look and you say, God, what you made isn't quite good enough. And our, our nation is saturated in this form of idolatry when we essentially look at God and say, you made a mistake. You made a mistake with regards to my attraction, my gender, my desire, my calling. My de- God does not make mistakes. It is not our job to create an idol of what God has made and transform the will of God into something that is subject to our whims. What this means for us is that if the God you're worshiping shows his love by always agreeing with you and supporting your decisions, it's not God you're worshiping, it's you. Lord, I thank you so much for the time that you've given us in the text today. I thank you for the truth that you are love and what this doctrine really means. Father, may we show love in a way that is lovingly confrontational that we lovingly correct Lord that we would show loving commitment that is not dependent on how pretty or ugly or good or bad someone else is but that we would commit ourselves to them and even this lost and dying world as we seek to be used by you to redeem and then may we show a cruciform love that we like you would be ever ready to lay down our lives not just for the ones who we like but for a world that hates us. Show us how to do these things as we go forward throughout this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.